Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. If you're just joining us new, then welcome. Make sure you go back and uh, check out recent prior episodes. We had David Kinnaman of the Barna Group on last week. Morgan Harper Nichols, Instagram poet extraordinaire the week before that. A story with my friend Maria about growing up in South Africa and how that moved her to care for children in her impoverished community. Uh, I've had all kinds of interesting people on the last little while. Sarah Bessie, Jefferson Bethke, all kinds of fun folks. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and go and listen to some of those other episodes. Anyway, today my guest is Michael Bird. He is a theologian and New Testament scholar. He's the editor of the brand new New Testament in its world with N.T. Wright. So Michael and I talked about New Testament, history, hegemony, language, power, all kinds of fun things. So uh, yeah, hope you enjoy. I have to say that, uh, like I said, I did a bunch of research on just trying to f- figure out who you are and learn about your your contributions because I wasn't familiar with you. I was very, very glad because, uh, I mean, hosting a podcast in North America and working with book publicity people who are always pitching me, oh, you know, here's a new book from so-and-so. And if I turn my laptop, there's a stack of books here that I'm supposed to be reading and, and helping. Yeah. And so anytime I get to talk to somebody outside of North America... I'm very relieved and pleased. Uh, oh, good. So, and also, you know, someone from near to my homeland, I am relieved and pleased. I'm oh, glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. Well, we've got the, the Antipodean partnership going down. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, on, on that subject, I came across the Council of Nicaea epic rap battle. Yeah. And uh, I was very impressed, sir. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is this is the thing. Actually, I did a podcast this morning, and people say, "Where did you get your skills for writing?" And I said, "Probably two areas. One, when I worked in military intelligence, you work in a very high density, fluid information environment, mm-hmm. where a whole bunch of information for all sorts of things, from the banal to the um, significant to the highly significant, comes in, and you've got to kind of bring it all in, synthesize it, digest it, and then disseminate it to the people who need." to know it very quickly. Uh, at the same time, I had a big love of musical theater. So if you, the, the best way to describe it, it would be something like um, uh, James Bond meets Stephen Sondheim. Um, <laughs> is the sort of, uh, if, if that's kind of like your sort of background, you know, writing intelligence reports and writing lyrics to, you know, Broadway musicals, um, yeah, that, that gives you a particular suite of skills <laughs> to draw on, which has, um, I think, positively affected my writing abilities. That's fabulous. So, so that's probably the way. But um, yeah, the, the other the other good thing, one of the big things I think I'm known for, at least on the internet, if you ever get a chance, um, go on YouTube and look up Biblica Hipsteria. Biblica Hipsteria. I wonder if I might have seen that one already. Okay, so you've got these secret rap skills, or, or at least rap lyric rap lyric skills. Yeah. N.T. Wright covers Bob Dylan. Yeah. What are all the other secret skills that the theologians are hiding? That's what I want um, to know. Oh, I don't know. I've come across a couple of biblical scholars who are formerly research chemists. <laughs> so they could they could probably do something like Breaking Bad pretty well <laughs> uh, if it came if it came down to it. It was Walter um, Walter Brueggemann. He he's he's secretly a, a meth lab guy, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he could be. There's a few others I know. Um, I think Paul Trabilco. Uh, is a former um, research chemist. Uh, what's the other one? Um, Bob Yarbrough used to be a lumberjack. Okay. 
Excellent. Um, I mean, that guy, he's got a, he does have a kind of rugged, you know, man mountain kind of <laughs> feel about him. You know, someone who's been living out in a shack in Saskatchewan and just cuts down a tree every day to burn to keep warm. He comes across a bit like that. <laughs> so, so how? Uh, good guy, good guy. So, how did you how did you leave your life of espionage and lyrical composition to become to become a prolific theologian? Yeah, well, I mean, initially I was thinking about becoming an army chaplain, mm, sure. uh, but as I as, as I went through college. Uh, it became clear I was probably more gifted on the academic side than on the people side. So uh, I just sort of you know, pursued the academic side a bit more rigorously and, and doors kept opening. I got a good GPA, got, in, got into uh, an honours program. From the honours program, I got a scholarship for a doctoral program. After my doctoral program, I got a job in Scotland. After Scotland, I was able to come back to Australia. Um, started a blog around the same time. Publishers took an interest in what I was doing and what I was writing. They'd, they'd uh, asked me to give them some proposals on stuff, and some of the stuff kind of went fairly well. And then next thing I know, I'm sitting in a sitting in a bar in uh, Atlanta discussing uh, out my forthcoming book project with Tom Wright. So it's <laughs> it's you know as one does it just but just a little bit weird in that sense. <laughs> but yeah, it just it just it just kind of happened. It, it just sort of. I seem to have the right ideas with the right people at the right time, and uh, all came together. And it's it's been it's been uh, it's been good. It's um, the way I've described it. It's it's a little bit like being asked to sing a working with Tom. It's a bit like being asked to sing a duet with Beyonce. Yes. You know, sure. you, you you know, we just get there, get up there and do our own sort of you know lemonade kind of a thing. <laughs> and yeah, although I'm also aware that when 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 the concert goes on, people are coming to see Beyonce, not to see me. Uh, which, which is which is very very, very uh, sobering and humbling and uh, something I I I, I do remember. <laughs> well, I I I must admit, full disclosure, when Harper Collins came to me and said, uh, "Hey, we've got this new project from NT Wright. You you know, I think it would be right up your alley." Then I said, "Okay, cool, yeah." I'd, I'd love to. And they said, okay, well, actually, coming to think of it, we're not sure it would be the best fit, so you're going to have to really work for this. So they made me write a whole pitch, which is very rare. And then Harper had, oh, wow. had, the, had the goal to send me a sample. And I thought, come on, guys. I get, I, I've got, I get the whole book normally. I get the whole thing yep. in an advanced copy. It wasn't until I had read through a bunch of the material and looked at the back and it said, you know, the final will be 900 pages that I was like, yeah. oh, okay, fair play, Harper, for, for lowball in <laughs> this one. And I said, I'd love to talk to Tom Wright. And they basically said, yeah, the problem is that he has holed up in this old home with no cell signal and no Wi-Fi and essentially no one can reach him. And yeah. so they said, but... Michael Bird's really cool, uh, and he's funny, and and you know he's good. I said, well, I won't hold the Australian thing against him, so you know we can make yeah. that work. Yeah, fair enough. Just I, if you don't mention uh, the rugby, I won't mention the America's Cup. <laughs> that sounds like a a fair play, a fair play. <laughs> so okay, was that was this the project that you were referring to? You know, sitting in Atlanta in a in a pub. Was that this this introduction? You know, the NT the New Testament. Uh, well, it. Is I I think it initially began in like maybe a bar in Manchester with me and SPCK uh, pitching the idea. 
that they should get someone. Well, actually, they asked me what if I had any more projects for them. I said, well, in the short term, no, but I said, Hell, but I'll give you one for free. Get someone to work with Tom Wright, take his various uh, lifetime of works and kind of compress it, condense it, um, funnel it into the volume of a New Testament introduction that will become a, uh, a widely used uh, textbook. Yes. And when I said that, they went, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. We love it. Hey, why don't you do it? And uh, I'd met Tom a few times at conferences, but I, but I thought, you know, I thought he might have his own people, his own sort of, you know, Padawans to do it. But Tom said, oh, yeah, that Mike Berg guy seems okay. Uh, yeah, let's give it a go. And one of the ways they pitched to Tom is, don't worry, you don't have to do anything. Michael <laughs> Bird will do everything, and you'll just have to read and just proof check the final thing. Um, that, that, which sounded really good, kind of, so you'll, so you'll get all these royalties and no work. He does it all. It's just fantastic. Um, but eventually, uh, uh, as the project kind of grew and grew, uh, when, it part, when the SBCK partnered with Zondervan, uh, Tom's involvement did become a, uh, a bit more hands-on, both in the design process and the finish. Yeah, probably in the design and the finishing process is where he, he did have a hand. And he did uh, edit the material and he did write and in some cases rewrite a considerable portion of the book. So it, it definitely was a, a joint effort by the end. Yeah. How long did it take? Uh, over a better part of ten years. Yeah. So wow. this was this was this was not something. I think we came up with the idea about two thousand and nine, wow. and then I think in two thousand and ten we met with with met with Tom, and then SPC came on board. Not SPC came when Zondervan came on board. It kind of morphed from being a black and white kind of book of about six hundred pages. To something that was going to be an all singing, all dancing light show bigger than Ben Hur. There's, I mean, you've got you've got the book itself. Then you've got the um, workbook. You've got the instructor's manual. There's two different DVDs that go with the book. There's uh, one for like more like a lay level DVD that's, that's that's filmed on location. And then there's more like a seminary curriculum version mm. of the book. And you know, I'm I'm suggesting we should come out with our own fragrance called yeah. Sepulchre. <laughs> the scent of crucifixion and possibly our own possibly our own line of clergy wear and maybe even communion wafers gluten-free communion wafers with tom wright's face on it oh man i know a lot of people in the kind of word of faith prosperity movement who could connect you with any suppliers that you need for you know anything in that project yeah yeah well we'll see how we go with the uh i was thinking you're just basically getting obsession and a bit of white wine vinegar and uh, that that could be that could be the uh, the, the sepulchre fragrance. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, ten years that makes sense to me. How how do you dream in Tom Wright's diction now, or like how how have you maintained your own thoughts and voice? Uh, yeah, it is a little bit weird because there's a few points where I'll be I'll be writing something. And I thought, okay, is this my thoughts or is this Tom's? I just happen to agree with. And there are some places where I can't remember the difference anymore. Uh, is this something I've been thinking? Um, although one thing I find is I keep using the precise the word precisely a lot more now because <laughs> that's that's one of Tom's. That's it's precisely that sort of kingdom vision, which is precisely the type of faith and vocation, which is precisely the kingdom of. I keep using the word precisely a lot. Uh, that's probably been the biggest impact on my uh, vocabulary. But otherwise, it's uh, it's been a, a great time working with one of the, uh, I think, best New Testament scholars and theologians in the Christian world for the you know, late 20th, early 20th century. 
And I've learned a lot. I've grown as a person. It's been a fantastic experience. Tom's very humble. Uh, you know, he's uh, certainly made me a full partner in the, the project and treated me very well. And the publishers we work with, Zondip and SPCK, they've been fantastic as well. And they've really done everything they can to promote this book and get into the hands of people who will hopefully benefit from it and, and value what they find there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can I can speak for, for myself. I, I don't have a copy yet, but I fully plan to buy a copy. I mean, it's an exquisite work that, mm. um, I mean, I, I haven't been to seminary myself, but to me, this looks like the definitive guide to the New Testament. So many different uh, angles and avenues pulled in, you know, historical, the theological, linguistic, all these different bits and pieces. Uh, certainly... And, and even, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tom's work. And so theologically, I'm like, yes, this, I know this is going to fit in kind of my ballpark already. Um, it's quite a remarkable achievement, I think. Yeah, I, I think the benefit, on the one hand, it is a little bit of a Tom Wright sampler. So you kind of get the, uh, his view of Jesus, resurrection, Paul, an early church. So it is a bit of a Tom Wright sampler. But at the same time, we're, we're not trying to merely give people more knowledge of the New Testament. I mean, I mean, you have to do that. You have to tell people what Mark is about. You have to talk about um, disputes over whether Paul wrote all the letters attributed to him, you know, different views of Revelation. But we're ultimately not trying to merely add to the acquired content of knowledge as much as change the way people read the New Testament. And remember what you're reading uh, from our perspective is you're reading history. So it's, it's, it's a, there is a back thenness. There is a historical cultural distance between our time and that time. And by knowing what that gap is, then you can start to bridge it. So we want to do um, history. Also, we want to do uh, literature. You know, the, these are writings that can be very poetic, very poignant, very powerful. How do you get understand into them? How do you understand the internal dynamics? You know, the, the rhetoric, the literary content, uh, how does the story create meaning? And then finally, we want to talk a bit about theology. How do you generate uh, normativities? How do you generate authority once you understand the Christian story? When you've, when you've got the – once you've grasped what God has done in Christ, what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. And that's why every chapter kind of finishes off with basically a, what I call a so what section. Mm -hmm. Kind of, okay, we've been through – uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and well, so what? How does this affect the way you eat your wheat bix tomorrow morning? Or when you read the book of Revelation, and even the final section of the book itself is about, you know, once you've once you've got into the Christian story, once you've understood Christian history and Jesus and the emergence of the church, what do you do with it? Yes. Um, so I, I think the book is unique in that sense. It's not like here's a bunch of information about the New Testament. Here's how to understand it. And here's some hints with what to do with it. Yes, yes, wonderful. Uh, one of the one of the things that that I encounter in my in my role uh, as a as a pastor is is I'll I'll come with it with a sermon on some subject. I taught a, a fairly simple, accessible message on on kind of some things on how to read the Bible. You know, I've got folks in our congregation who some of whom do not read Scripture whatsoever, have never read the Bible at all. Uh, others who have read the Bible their entire life and have a really firm sense of what they think it's saying. Uh, mm. So I will present something that I believe is historically supported, is is supported by a 
a balance of theologians, and I will have any number of people confidently tell me later on, nope, wrong. <laughs> and how do you, as, as someone who's deeply invested, how do you manage like that dissonance between what you know, kind of deeply, even at a, at a proven level, and, mm. and the common lay person's, well, I believe it, I read it, that's it, the Bible, that settles it, kind of mindset? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the issue you're dealing with. Like, uh, well, to give one example, take, say, the new perspective on Paul. And if you were raised a fairly conservative, reformed household and you were taught that the new perspective on Paul was spawned from the armpit of Satan himself, as if there is nothing good that can be found there, and it's all to the detriment of the gospel, whether you want to say it's a return to Catholicism or some sort of Jewish legalism. Uh, what I usually use, what I usually tell people is, okay, hang on, let's. No one's saying let's throw out the Reformation and uh, undo the insights of Luther and Calvin and the reformers. You can you can have you can have the best of both worlds here. Uh, what we're saying in the new perspective on Paul is that there is a social dimension to justification by faith, that it relates to who the people of God are. And I always begin by asking them uh, a few simple phrases now. Do you believe a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law? Which is what Paul says in Romans 3. And I say, yes, definitely. You know, I say, okay, what is the opposite of justification by faith apart from works of the law. What is the opposite of that? And they'll say, well, it's, you know, it's Jewish legalism, it's the doctrines and dogmas of the Catholic Church and that type of thing. And then I say, well, that's, that's very interesting. What does Paul say is the logical opposite of justification by faith? And they kind of think about it and they don't know. And then I take them to Romans 3, 28, maybe 29, where Paul says, we believe that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? And I point out, Paul shows here the opposite of justification by faith is the belief that his grace has been limited to one specific ethnic group, the Judeans, or the Jews, if you want to call them that. That's what Paul says is the opposite. So you're not thinking in Pauline categories when I ask you this question, do you? So there's an example how you can simply allow the, the sheer naked reality of the text to overwhelm their presuppositions and some of the traditional ways they've been led and say, look, I'm not asking you to trash what you value. I'm asking you to broaden your horizons into what the scriptural witness is about. And then I take them to another passage in Galatians. Now I say, you believe that Christ was cursed on the cross for us. I mean, this is, you know, good substitutionary atonement. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you believe we received the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think Christ was cursed on the cross? Why do you think we were redeemed? And I say, you know, so we could go to heaven, so we could be right with God, so we could have a relationship, you know, the usual things. And I say, well, that's very good. But what does Paul say? And they look at me curiously, and when we open up our little passage on Galatians 3, and it says Christ became cursed on the cross and redeemed us so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. So they tend to, they tend to think in personal, individualistic um, soteriology in the sense of how can I find a merciful God, yes. whereas Paul's question is who are the people of God? Now, justification by faith answers both questions. It answers the question, what must I do to be saved? You know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also what defines God's people, that, that, that God's people are the Messiah-believing people, irrespective of whether they are Jewish, Gentile, barbarian, Arab, American, Australian, 
and even New Zealander because, <laughs> you know, uh, because God's grace does not discriminate. That's, That's right. That's the great DSLA. There is no distinction. There is no distinction here. And what is more, you could argue that justification by faith is a great resource, not merely for confronting legalism or any sort of sense of self-righteousness, but it's also a tool that means there can be no racism or ethnic segregation Mm. because of justification by faith. And this is what Galatians 2 is about and Romans 4 is about. It means nobody in the church get asked to sit at the back of the bus. Nobody says, okay, equal but separate, because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one people of God, which we symbolize in the one loaf when we worship our one Savior. So justification works itself out with certain social realities, which, to be frank, was known to the church fathers, but was somewhat marginalized uh, amongst the uh, Protestant scholastics who focused something more on the intricacies of salvation uh, about, you know, how does justification relate to election or a covenant of works? And they missed what is the social dimension behind the text that Paul was arguing, in effect, when he talks about justification, he's arguing that Gentiles don't have to convert to Judaism in order to become followers of Jesus. Mm, that's right. So once, once I, think, I think you can do this in a non-hostile sort of way. You're not asking people to burn their Bible and to accept a, a new kind of, progressive or whatever religion it is, you're telling them, well, if you want to have a biblical faith, then you've got to be open to what all of the Bible is saying, not your simply your selective way of reading it, not your traditional way of reading it, not the bits of the Bible that you like, as if you're some kind of buffet Baptist or cafeteria Catholic. And you've got to be, you've, you've got to be willing to be challenged by the testimony of Scripture, because that's what it means to be a good Protestant, to be sola scriptura, means to challenge your own traditions, your own interpretations, your own culture, and how they use the Bible, and to sit under its authority more properly. Yes. Amen. Oh, thank you. I like that, Mike. That's really good. Uh, do you get into that? You've got a new work I know coming up, the Theology of the New Covenant. Are you, are you unpacking those kinds of subjects? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's um, that's in its early stages. I'm about like eight years behind on it. Uh, but that's that's a book that I that I am gradually working on now. Uh, for me, I guess the next thing I've got coming out is a Philippians commentary co-authored with Nijay Gupta coming out with uh, Cambridge University Press. And I have a second edition of my evangelical theology coming out. Hmm. And that's that 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 book. The, the idea behind it is what if you did systematic theology with the idea that the gospel, you know, the evangel, is the center, boundary, and integrating point for Christian thought. What would theology look like if you made the gospel the integrative hub for your ecclesiology, you know, doctrine of the church, you know, or the atonement, your eschatology? Uh, what would happen? And it's essentially the, the, the attempt to do theology working out of, of, from the gospel as a kind of first principle. As opposed to what are other things that people have built out from? Oh, well, people can manage in all sorts of motifs, ranging from covenant, magnificence of God, that's Erickson, the community of God, that's Stanley Grenz. Uh, you could say that Calvin was very much into, I think, you know, the glory of God. Uh, for Karl Barth, you could say it was the God who loves in freedom, is the, the, the sort of the big idea behind the whole thing. So, yeah, I, I was trying to come, well, for me, I was trying to come up with what I would call a consistent and thoroughgoing evangelical theology. Mm. Not just here's theology, and somewhere in the midst of that you may find some gospel if you look hard enough. 
Right. Would you describe your theology broadly as as evangelical, or are you looking to speak into a different community? Uh, no, I would do. I would do. But we have to accept the fact that the word evangelical means different things to different people. Yes. And and uh, and certainly the rise of Trump and a particular type of Christian Trump supporter has created something of a fissure and something of a uh, of a divide. Yes. over what the meaning of the term is. Now, you could argue that at one level the word evangelical um, means almost like, you know, not Catholic. You know, it just means sure. to be a reform. Certainly in Evangelisch, that's what it means in German. Uh, mostly, though, we would argue that evangelicalism is a kind of renewal movement within Protestantism, a kind of synthesis of Puritanism and Pietism worked out in the largely the English-speaking world on their sort of missionary expansion in the in the 20th century uh, that that's how I would, I, I would tend to define it by commitment to certain theological tenets which you find I think in the in the what's called the Bebbington quadrilateral yes that's probably the best definition of it uh, the pro- the problem is evangelical I think is a very good word uh, the problem is the word is used so broadly as to be practically meaningless yeah. the word can describe all sorts of people. For some, evangelical is simply a, a synonym for fundamentalism. In some places, it's associated with particular right-wing uh, political views about uh, government, gun control, and individual liberty and all sorts of things like that. So it is a little bit of a hard sell, but uh, changing the book to um, uh, a reformational Catholic uh Maybe a bit of a hard sell for readers as well. So I, I think I'm going to keep the word evangelical and they can prize it from my dead hands. <laughs> How does that play out even in Australia? Because, I mean, I'm in Canada, which in... I mean, it's a fascinating theological space. Like, on the one hand, Canada is probably 10 to 15 years ahead of sort of the cultural changes that are of America. You, you know, Europe is 10 to 15 years ahead or more of Canada. So even the word evangelical and these values mean totally different things as we move our way yeah. around the world. And I think yeah, it's yeah, North Americans yeah. have a very triumphalistic framework. There's no theology happening outside of America, surely. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. It's, it's the rest of the world's just jungle huts and where iPhones are made. Uh yeah, no, it's interesting. The Bible Society in Australia did like a survey of the best and worst regarded words for Christians. And they found that the word evangelical received like a low rating, as in people did not think highly of the category, you know, being evangelical. But what one word that did score highly, and this is how I usually describe myself in, in public forums, is the idea of being a practicing Christian. So the term evangelical scored low in sort of, you know, community estimations, but being a practicing Christian scored uh, quite high. So that's how, how, I mean, in somewhat polemical or adversarial context, I call myself a practicing Christian. Sure. That that literally lines up with the research that that Barna Group has you know have been pulling out in the mm. last couple of years, right? Like uh, mm. they use I think the term resilient disciple to basically mean your life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, yeah. What about I mean beyond beyond evangelicalism? Like how do you do you 
what do you encounter theologically just in terms of as you enter the States, as you dialogue with theologians there and and, and in North America, are there broad category divisions? Is there a sense of like theology is done differently or, or that, that theology done in a major kind of dominant global power produces different thoughts? Uh, there are some big differences between, I think, American evangelicalism and the, and the rest of the world. Uh, in the rest of the world, things like the doctrine of inerrancy are not the center of the universe, mm. whereas in, in other places they are. So in most places, uh, Christian places around the world, you will encounter a very high view of Scripture. We'll pause for a minute to give a shout out to my patrons. Thank you so much to everyone who supports this show every month. Your support keeps me on the air, keeps me in this work and writing and feeding my family. So thank you so much. If you are a fan of the show and are not a supporter, could I ask you to consider it? For as little as $3 a month, you can chip into the show. It helps me out and it gives you access to a bunch of cool behind the scenes stuff. Uh, exclusive podcast where I share more about what's what I'm really thinking and a bunch of other stuff as well as you get pre-release access to everything that I'm writing. And I've got a devotional coming out. All my Patreon people have hopefully been reading it. Uh, I hope it's been a source of life and joy to you. It's called You Are Enough, Learning to Love Yourself the Way God Loves You. So head over to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle and you can uh, join the group. And it would be a huge blessing to me. Thank you so much. Back to the show. Uh, certainly the way scripture is used, revered, and treated, and people will will talk about the the authority and the infallibility, uh, the veracity of scripture. But uh, Americans, because of the historical context and their denominational infighting, often want a degree of precision and specificity that uh, is simply is simply going to um, create further division. Mm-hmm. The other problem is people can frequently preach the inerrancy of the text, but what they mean is the inerrancy of their interpretation. Or what they mean, uh, to be uh, nakedly frank about it, is they mean the hegemony of their tribe Mm -hmm. and how it handles the Bible. And trying to explain that to Americans doesn't always go down well. Now, there's there's a great many of my American friends who who do understand that, that, you know, uh, who, who, who have for a variety of reasons a more i think balanced view of of the faith and they don't major on on certain things but the, the danger is always that religion and this is both the conservatives and the progressives that religion is simply used to sponsor and affirm a certain ideology mm-hmm. and that's the kind of you bring it and i bless it when my politician gets up and gives their view on immigration whatever it is my job is to say this is the word of the lord uh, which which does lead to uh, a kind of uh, a religious sponsorship of whatever political apparatus or, or party that someone preferences. And I think that's one of the, the big dangers. On the one hand, I don't think Christianity is necessarily apolitical, but I, I definitely think it should be nonpartisan. Uh, in fact, I wrote an article for the Washington Post on exactly that that Jesus doesn't really care about America's partisan divide. Uh, he kind of <laughs> defines categories. Uh, yeah, they got a, they got a few good tweets coming at me. Um, <laughs> How dare you sit over there in Australia and throw pot shots at our at our ideologies? <laughs> yeah, I always had a good response to that. I said, I know far more about your politics than you know at mine. And uh, <laughs> that's because we can't people, remember all the names of your prime ministers, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Yeah, we do go through them like a drunken billionaire with a new girlfriend. Um, <laughs> but, th- but, then again, uh, but then again, I've seen your selection of Prime Ministers, Justin Trudeau. But Did he's got know, a beard uh, now. He's got a beard now. So that's good. It's, it, well, that's just as well. But I saw him on TV uh, the other day, but I didn't recognize him because I didn't recognize him with a white face. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I should be deeply offended and ashamed at his behavior. But, uh, oh, man. And how... And how many times did he meet with the ethics commissioner? That's what I want to know. It's, uh, yeah, politics, eh? Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget when, um, was it Andrew? Was it Andrew Scheer or Schneer? What's his name? The opposition leader? Scheer. Um, he asked Justin Trudeau about 20 times in parliament, how many times did he meet with the ethics commissioner? And Trudeau just kept on saying, I'm happy to meet with the ethics commissioner anytime. He said, we know that, but how many times did you meet? He just kept repeating. It was just, it was just unbelievable. But uh, anyway, well, we can. We've, all of our countries have political foibles and um, fallibilities when it comes to who gets elected. Uh, but I, I guess, yeah, I, I think the main thing is we, no one would, should see Christianity as something simply to be co-opted by a political movement because that never ends well and you always end up losing credibility. And it's one thing to say, look, I voted for Trump because I thought he was the least worst option. Um, it's another thing to say that Trump is the new Cyrus who's come to save us and whatever he does, we need to, we need to support it and sponsorship it. Yeah. And I mean, that, I mean, that, that swings on the other side as well, of course, but yeah, that's the bit that really concerns me. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated the, the piece you wrote, uh, recently on that in response to, um, Grudem's kind of endorsement. Uh, how how important is it to understand the power dynamics in the first century in the the New Testament world? Well, I, th- I think it's you know it's very important. You you're dealing with an imperial context where you know when it when it comes to the to the empire, you, your choices are ingratiate yourself into it or run the hell from it. That's the uh, that's the option. And actually, why I find the Book of Revelation so fascinating is not just because it's got this wonderful vision of of the worship of God and Jesus and the necessary of endurance under persecution and God's plan to to bring us into the kingdom of the of uh, of, of the Lord and his Messiah but the book of revelation is singularly unique because it is one of the few writings of the ancient world who tells you what does the Roman empire look like from the perspective of those who have got its boot on their throat. Mm. That is why I find the Book of Revan, this, this, this is what empire looks like for, for, from the perspective of those who are you know, under its yoke. And an apocalypse, you could argue, in, in a sociological sense, is a coded critique of power that is, is a means of protesting against the brutalities and the injustices of empire. And in our own context, where there are uh, some very, very uh, nasty empires about, I was just talking yesterday to a wonderful man who was uh, working in a, a seminary in China. Mm-hmm. And that's where you really do have a, a autocratic, predatory uh, regime uh, who wants to stamp out all dissent and doesn't like people worshipping God when they should be worshipping the state and its head. So I think it's it's very relevant to, to people today uh, in all, all sorts of ways. So no, knowing who's in charge um, uh, helps you understand 
you know, what, what are the problems, what are the injustices, what are the d- dynamics that are going on? And the New Testament addresses them quite brutally. Well, not brutally, it's probably not the right word, but quite clearly. Mm. You, you see that there is the, uh, you, you see particularly, let's say in Romans 13, Paul is trying to negotiate. Okay, look, basically keep your head down, uh, don't cause too much trouble, and hopefully, you know, you won't get noticed. In other words, Paul's saying to the church, be the gray man, be the guy or girl who just blends into the background, pay your taxes, say, yes, sir, thank you, sir. Um, Luke, Luke is a little bit different. Luke is saying, look, I mean, I know you think that we're a threat to Roman order and justice, but I'll be perfectly frank with you. Roman justice ain't so just. Now, we may be an alternative to the Roman Empire, but we're not trying to deliberately bring the whole thing down. Mm. Whereas John of Patmos, his view is God's going to burn the whole thing down. And when it does, I'll be there with the popcorn and the sunglasses because all these motherless sons of divine pseudo-emperors are going to get what they deserve. I mean, so you, you see some different uh, ways of handling the text, the tensions. You mean, I mean, John just wants to burn the whole thing down. Um, but, I mean, but there's probably things that have happened that have led him to, to, to want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel, I get the sense, I mean, again, I, I'm not a scholar, but I, I, I often, in a pastoral context, get the sense that that the New Testament for all the things that it gives us, maybe doesn't give us a very clear path on what it looks like to be a believer in a dominant culture, in a culture that believes it's Christian, mm. which which is has all kinds of falsehoods of, of its own. But I, I often seem to sort of run into this, like, there's this expectation, right, that, that oh, we're city on a hill kind of theology meets, well, it's a Christian culture, so it's wonderful, and, and we decry the secularism of our society, and we hold up our Bibles. And I, I'm often left to just feel like, I just can't help but feel like, you know, there's so much that, for example, the black church would say, oh, we've been reading this very differently to you then. Yeah, yeah. The, the experience of marginalization and oppression will do that to you. And that's why, as white Christians begin to mar- get marginalized uh, and, and then in some senses uh, oppressed, uh, they may need to look to leadership from their black brothers and sisters who say, well, welcome to my world, mm. <laughs> um, that type of a thing. Uh, the other thing I was going to say, yeah, I mean, there is a tension because, I mean, I've heard people say that the church should resist the temptation of power. And it should simply be the prophet on the margins. Okay, so we need to be prophetic. We shouldn't be the principality, you know, or we, we, we shouldn't be the presiding power, which is all well and good. But when, what happens when people start listening to the prophet and people say, like, I want I want the kind of stuff that the prophet's talking about. So I want the prophet or someone like the prophet to be our leader. And that's basically what happens in the history of Western civilization you 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 get Christians being this protest movement on the margins. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one one fascinating study. Um, someone was arguing that Constantine was the first woke emperor uh, because he took the concerns of a protest movement, uh, the, the, the Christians who were about maybe ten to fifteen percent of the empire, who decried the the vanity of Roman religion, the injustices, the debauchery of Roman culture for something far more austere and disciplined and monastic. And he took that sort of that progressive in that time, that progressive group, and he gave them power. So Constantine was the first woke emperor 
who gave in to the social justice warriors of the Roman Empire. If you stopped there, I and, could almost believe you. <laughs> yeah. Now, we know the, prob- the, the problem is Christianity resisted the brutalities of empire, but then, as we know, history goes on, Christianity became the empire. So what do you do with what what do you do at that point now? How do you read the book of Revelation when you've got, you know, a Christian emperor on the throne? Well, you can't read it the same way. You're no longer, you know, going to burn it down. You've got to go more allegorical or dare in some senses you could say a millennial because you've now got to put this in a more timeless um spiritual fashion because mm. if, if you don't if you because if you're now on top of the pyramid you don't want the whole pyramid to come crashing down and you want to maintain the status quo you know maybe improve it here or that or, or or that type of thing so but that's what's that's what happened christianity went from sort of you know being the justice warriors against empire having a, a different form of worship a different vision of god and human good in society to then becoming the that the powers that be and as we all know, power corrupts and absolute power. And there, there is, there is high. I think Christendom uh, was both. I have to say, in the very least, was a mixed blessing. I'm not convinced that it was a hundred percent bad, evil, and pernicious. But like I said, if if you're the prophet protesting, what do you do when people start listening to the prophet? Sure. You know what? What I mean, if you know, I mean, imagine if I mean, imagine if Martin Luther King um, got elected president of the United States. Yes. You know. Uh, and then he becomes the power. Uh, you know, is it always going to be benevolent? I mean, people saw Barack Obama as the great benevolent leader, but even then, there were things that happened. I mean, whatever happened to shutting down Guantanamo? For what's sure. the deal with all the what's the what's the deal with all the drone strikes? Taking out lawsuits against a bunch of Catholic nuns because they won't give abortion pills to their employees. You know, it, it, once you get in power. Yeah. Uh, eventually, people will start to hate you, or the the unfairness, the privilege, the prejudices of something will come out, and that's why uh, power is always a poison chalice, mm. uh, a sweet one. And yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I can appreciate the argument that we should always resist it, and we should just you know don't focus on being tribal and just getting your man in or your woman in. Uh, there is advantage to get you know getting someone who gets elected who's got good policies that agree with christian teaching about the poor the sanctity of life uh, you know on justice and fairness for refugees and that type of thing it always sounds good but there's always a price yes there's always a, a real politic that comes with it and in my own mind i haven't figured out how to resolve that mm. i just i just have to live with the 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 political and moral ambiguity of how of how i vote in any given election yes i really appreciate those thoughts mike when you sat down with with those folks in that pub in that very first conversation to hey somebody should do this with Tom Wright and, and pull together this New Testament introduction, what what was your dream? What why? What was your hope? Just because it's an opportunity, or did you have a, a grander kind of just dream maybe or sense of this could accomplish something? Um, well, it was a bit of both. It was, um, you know, on the one hand, it's a great honor to work with uh, with Tom, right? I mean, like I said, it's like it's like being asked to sing a duet with Beyonce, uh, you know, that kind of thing. You know, you, you know, no one, no one says no to Beyonce, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but it was also the chance to, to be part of Tom's sort of ongoing project, his own his own uh, contribution to New Testament scholarship, and importantly, I think his own vision of the church, which I think is a, a very a very good vision. Uh, 
I mean, certain things I would definitely tease out a little bit differently or, or might take a slightly divergent way within the same path. But I, I think it's something that would definitely benefit the church and certainly enrich the way Christians read the Bible and practice their faith. So being part of that mm. was a, a pretty big was a pretty big carrot to get me involved. Yeah, yeah. What if you could leave with one one hope or dream for how Christians would change in their engagement of the Scripture and then and, and how that would influence the church? Uh, what's your prayer? What, what's your hope and prayer for the church in that regard? Uh, I think a number of things. Just making sure Christians are regularly reading their Bible, I think, is is a is a good thing. I mean, the, the danger is we become so involved in our little eye world that we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, you know, WhatsApp, Nanogram, you know, whatever 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 people are into today, and that we retain the discipline of Bible reading and we seek to understand it deeper. And because if we understand Scripture deeper, then we'll know God better. And we'll know ourselves and know our own place in the world. So at one level, simply doing it like that. Uh, I would also like to see Christians uh, doing more to read the Bible in community. How can they make more of the Bible in their own church? And how can they make more of that in tandem with other churches, mm. you know, who may not be their natural, may not be their natural allies or their natural co-belligerents? Uh, and that could mean groups like, you know, the local Co- Coptic Orthodox Church or, you know, maybe it's the local Methodist Church. I mean, if we get these people together and read scripture together, how can we grow and learn from one another? Mm. So, I mean, that, that's, that's the type of thing I, that I would do. And I'll say I think Tom Wright's project is, a, is something that does bring people to do that. We had Tom Wright in Melbourne, I think, about well, five years ago, and we had such an amazing diversity of people like, you know, we've got our own constituency and our own stakeholders, usually sort of, you know, evangelical, what I would call evangelical or moderate evangelical Anglicans would be our sort of main group. But we had people from Hillsong. Yeah. We had people from like the Uniting Church. We had Catholics. We had Greek Orthodox. Um, we had this wider range of people uh, we'd never seen who came to this event. So Tom is able to speak to and attract people for some very, very uh, diverse uh, ecclesial context that I found very, very fascinating. Uh, in fact, when when Tom was in Brisbane, he was invited there by by the Catholics, not by the Anglicans. If you know anything about Brisbane, that's fairly self-evident. But he was invited by the Catholics. And you had the Archbishop of Brisbane say that after – she said for him, reading Jesus and the Victory of God, that's Tom Books in 1996, he said it was it was like meeting Jesus for the first time. Hmm. Wow. So, so, this, so this is, this is a, a, a Catholic scholar um, who's, who's got that perspective and is uh, – or Catholic leader who's bringing that on board. So I, I would hope to think that the work that, that I do, the work that I do with Tom – would have that same ecumenical effect. It will bring people from diverse traditions to study the Bible together and to grow in faith together and to, you know, fulfill Jesus's prayer that, you know, that they may be one as I and the Father are one. Yes. Amen. That's beautiful. I love that. Thank you. Mike, I've really appreciated this time. This has been, this has been very enjoyable. Uh, I wonder if you'd if you'd pray for us, whatever's on your spirit, but maybe even that that ecumenical vision 
Yes, yes, I can certainly do that. Let me pray for us then. Our Heavenly Lord, we thank you for the good things you bless, bless us with. We know all good things come from you. Uh, Lord, at this moment, this hour, I pray for rain in Australia to stop the fires. Yes, uh, but also, also pray for some fires that the word of God would light fires in the hearts of men and women around the world who would seek to know you and to be known by you. And we would all learn that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And we pray, Lord, as we as we draw closer together, closer to your word, we'll draw closer to each other as well, coming together around one Lord, one faith and one baptism to the glory of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And this we pray in the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That was the Reverend Dr. Michael Bird. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. And make sure you go and check the show notes because I've linked to a whole bunch of things that we talked about, most especially, of course, the New Testament in its world. You should go and order that book as well as uh, check out the uh, Council of Nicaea epic rap battle as well as uh, Biblica Hipsteria. So we, uh, <laughs> it's a bunch of fun stuff and some really good stuff. So go check the show notes, click on some of those links, and have yourself a blessed day. I'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast. Please go follow me on social media. Make sure you're staying in the loop. And uh, if you want to jump on my email, that would be great too, jonathanpuddle.com, and you can uh, find the subscribe link right there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you, my friends. Bye-bye.